Jesus, thank you so much for this evening and for this opportunity to come together to worship you through the reading and study of your word, um, to do so in community with one another and in song and in prayer and lament. And God, we pray that for all the, um, the hurt that is present in our world right now and the feelings of powerlessness that many of us have, um, the feelings of just wanting to give up or that there's no place to go with our our concern, our anger. Jesus, we believe and stand here in this place believing that you hold that space for us, that you can hold all of the lament and all of the hurt and all of the cares and all of our concerns, and that when we give them to you, you not only hold space for them, you weep with us, you get angry with us, that righteous indignation anger, and that you will hear and act. So Jesus, today as we study your word and continue to try to push into um, these ethics that you have present for us today, may we be moved and may we be changed by them in the power of the Holy Spirit. We ask all this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Deuteronomy chapter 15. Every seventh year you shall grant a remission of debts. And this is the manner of the remission. Every creditor shall remit the claim that is held against a neighbor, not exacting it of a neighbor who is a member of the community because the Lord's remission has been proclaimed. Of a foreigner, you may exact it, but you must remit your claim on whatever any member of your community owes you. There will, however, be no one in need among you, because the Lord is sure to bless you in the land the Lord your God is giving you as a possession to occupy. If only you will obey the Lord your God by diligently observing this entire commandment that I command you today. When the Lord your God has blessed you, as he has promised, you will lend to many nations, but you will not borrow. You will rule over many nations, but they will not rule over you. If there is among you anyone in need, a member of your community in any of your towns within the land that the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward your needy neighbor. You should rather open your hand, willingly lending enough to meet the need, whatever it may be. Be careful that you do not entertain a mean thought, thinking, the seventh year, the year of remission is near, and therefore view your needy neighbor with hostility and give nothing. Your neighbor might cry to the Lord against you, and you would incur guilt. I don't think we want to do that. Um, Give liberally and be ungrudging when you do so, for on this account, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. Since there will never cease to be some in need on the earth, I therefore command you, open your hand to the poor and needy neighbor in your land. If a member of your community, whether a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you and works for you six years, in the seventh year you shall set that person free. And when you send a male servant out from, a, from you a free person, you shall not send him out empty-handed. Provide liberally out of your flock, your threshing floor, and your wine press, thus giving to him some of the bounty with which the Lord your God has blessed you. Remember that you were once a slave in, in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. For this reason, I lay this command upon you today." But if this Hebrew slave, man or woman, says to you, I will not go out from you because he loves you and your household and since he is well off with you, then you shall take an awl and thrust it through his earlobe into the door and he shall be your servant forever. Just ancient ear piercing. You shall do the same with regard to your female servant. Do not consider hardship when you send them out from you free persons because for six years they've given you services worth the wages of hired laborers and the Lord your God will bless you in all that you do. 
there's our, the end of our reading for today. So what's going on here? What's happening in the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 15? And what are we supposed to be paying attention to? And does it apply to our life at all today? Because probably most recently we haven't been keeping this command of every six to seven years. Yeah, doing the, no? Anybody? Okay. Um, God cares about the poor. That's the first thing we're going to learn from Deuteronomy chapter 15. God is deeply concerned about the poor and the most marginalized amongst the Israelite community, and God wants to make sure that they are taken care of. So let's look about how God is instructing the Israelites to do this. By the way, this shouldn't shock us as followers of Jesus, because Jesus starts out the Sermon on the Mount with, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, right? And we always like to just say, well, that's just like people that are poor in spirit that day, like feeling a little down or something like that. But I think that it is more than that. And Jesus frequently is talking about poverty. He's talking about economics. Jesus talks about money quite a bit. He talks about the issues of justice surrounding all that. So when we talk about how God has a concern for the poor, Jesus also has a deep concern for the poor. And we shouldn't be surprised by that because Deuteronomy is a book Jesus is quoting from quite frequently. So Jesus takes the step where he even says, the poor, yeah, the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. Deuteronomy chapter 4, a little bit later on, it gives us a little bit of a glimpse into additional concerns God has. He says, when you make your neighbor a loan of any kind, this is again commentary on this chapter 15, you shall not go into the house to take the pledge. What's immediately being assumed there? That person is going to ask for a loan, you don't go into their house and invade their space and take something as collateral. You continue to respect the dignity of that person. You wait outside while the person to whom you're making the loan brings the pledge out to you. If the person's poor, don't sleep in the garment given to you as a pledge. You don't get to keep it overnight, right? You give the pledge back by sunset so that your neighbor may sleep in the cloak and bless you. And it will be to your credit before the Lord your God. So like God is watching how we behave in this and God's paying attention to it. Deuteronomy 24 continues. You shall not withhold the wages of poor and needy laborers, whether Israelites or aliens, strangers that reside in your land or one of your towns. You shall pay them the wages daily before sunset because they're poor and their livelihood depends on them. Otherwise, and get this, they might cry out to the Lord against you and you will incur guilt. So their advocate is God, and God is paying attention to the poor, and God will credit them with goodness and credit us, those of us who would be holding or withholding their labor and wages or doing something unjust, that we're going to be held responsible and we'll be guilty for that. The poor in Deuteronomy chapter 15, God says at the very beginning, by the way, there's going to be no one in need when you get there to the land because the land can support you all and it'll be great and wonderful and you're not going to borrow from any nation and all the nations will come to you and it'll be wonderful. But if, this only happens if you obey the Lord your God by diligently observing all these commands. Is that going to happen? So in the very same passage, just a few verses later, we get this verse like, since there's never going to be cease, cease to be poor in the midst of the land. So in just a few verses, we have like an aspirational verse of like, there shouldn't be any poor amongst you. The land is big enough to sustain all of you. And yet there will be poor amongst you. And how are you going to do this? Jesus references this verse, by the way, when the woman comes and anoints him with oil, and then there's some grumbling and saying, wow, there was so many wages that she spent on anointing Jesus before his burial. And he goes, hey, the poor you'll always have. They, they say they could have used this money for the poor. And he says, the poor you will always have with you. But right now you have me for only for a little while longer. And people have taken that verse, which is this quote out of Deuteronomy. Jesus quotes his book all the time. 
He's a great author, so he just quotes his own rave reviews. Um, when he quotes this book out of Jeremiah, people take that quote and they say, see, even Jesus said the poor will always be with us. We don't have to live differently. We don't have to change our economic systems. We don't have to do anything else because, see, Jesus said poor will always be with you. Oh, well, that's kind of how it goes. I mean, that is a real, legit verse taken out of context with regularity and used in conversations. Hasn't anybody observed that? But Jesus, when he says that, isn't giving an excuse for the wealthy amongst us to behave any way. It's actually commenting on the fact that we are not obeying God. Because the beginning of Deuteronomy 15 says, the land can support you all. There shouldn't be any poor amongst you. But if there are, here's how to handle it. And by the way, because you're not going to obey and you're not going to take care of one another, here's why the poor are always going to be with you. So it's a bigger commentary than just, it's okay that she spent this money. And there's something more going on there. Deuteronomy 15 is going to focus on three extreme difficulties for the poor. The inability to pay off debts, the inability to obtain a loan, and indentured servitude. These three things don't sound, even though as as foreign as Deuteronomy 15 can sound when we start to read it, remission of guilt and don't do this to the Hebrew and the Israelite and the alien amongst you, all that. These three things are things we see today, don't they? Don't we, right? That there is an inability to pay off debt. And there's a huge national conversation going on about how students incur so much debt and what happens and can you ever pay it off and will, it ever, will you ever be set free from those things. And then if you're poor, you can't get a loan. Only the wealthy, the people with resources can get loans, right? And so much so that many people end up living a life where essentially they don't have any freedom. And they're shackled by all of these things. And for some in our world, as we've talked about with International Justice Mission and Bay Area Anti-Trafficking Coalition and others, some people actually are enslaved and trafficked because of poverty. So Deuteronomy 15, the Lord in the writing of this, of this beautiful chapter here, Deuteronomy is going to pay attention to these three primary things that are happening always to the poor, no matter where they live in the world, no, really no matter what time of history. So chapter 15, 1 through 6 is going to deal with every seven years, creditors have to forgive the debts owed. Verses 7 through 11, loans to the poor must be given even if it's the sixth year. And a person may not be required to work as an indentured servant longer than six years. None of these, you're not permitted to enslave these people to their circumstances or to their poverty forever. And so God's going to talk about and put forward a system within Israel that talks about the remission of debt, the forgiveness of debt. Now, the ancient Israelites talked about this, and even the rabbis talked about this in the time of Jesus and just after. And during that time, they discussed, like, is this all debt? And they said, no, it's not your shopping debt. You don't get to say to the merchant, I owe you for all of those nice clothes that I bought, and I'm just not going to pay you because it's year six, right? There'd be shopping sprees all throughout the nation. Uh, The remission for debts is for the benefit of the poor. It doesn't cover all types of debt. According to those rabbinic discussions, it doesn't cancel unpaid wages. For example, you can't be the landowner and just look at all the people who've been working for you and go, oh, six year, I know I owe you for all the work you did, but I'm not going to pay you because that would be antithetical to the entire passage, right? They were not able to, like, bills owed to shopkeepers for merchandise and certain types of secured loans, right? All of these things did not get forgiven. 
This is specifically created for the benefit of the poor. In fact, I would argue that it's charity but with dignity. That there's some dignity sort of built in. And the respect for the person, the humanity of the other individual is brought into this this command. The Torah is concerned with the debt of the poor. You see, a farmer might need funds, seed, or supplies because of crop failure or a drought, right? A city dweller might struggle with unemployment. Maybe there's been an illness or a sickness in the family. There's an awareness that people will be poor because life happens. And loans in such circumstances were acts of charity much more than a commercial venture. They were not giving a loan so they could bring and charge some sort of interest for it or make money off off the hardship of that individual. So forgiving such a loan was an extension of that charity. It was built into the system. In fact, Moses is going to talk about this in Deuteronomy 15. It's really a matter of the heart, right? Because he's like saying, hey, by the way, if it's year six, don't withhold the loan. Which, by the way, as the year of remission approached, those willing to lend to the poor might be reluctant to do so, right? And Moses urges the people to disregard such calculations, arguing that God will bless with further prosperity, those who do lend to the poor and is going to punish those who refuse to lend. Because there's no way for the authorities in Jesus' day or earlier on in the ancient Israelite time to know the motives of the person that refuses the loan. Maybe they actually can't do it, right? So this exhortation is not really enforceable. The only resource for the poor, the recourse for the poor, is those who are denied a loan as a plea to God, who then promises justice. And so there's this immediate reality brought in where Moses recognizes that our hearts are going to be hard, that we're looking for ways out of that charitable giving and loan. And so right away we recognize we can't really serve God and serve the interests of our pocketbook. This system, this charitable giving with dignity system that's brought into play here in Deuteronomy does not allow us to do both things at the same time. Jesus talks about this. You can't serve both God and money. Because if you're serving money, you don't lend in year six. Or you don't lend to a person that you think can't serve you back, pay you back, right? If you're serving God, though, you're deeply concerned about the poor. You're deeply concerned for those who are marginalized and suffering around you. Now, the last part that gets talked about in this section is this indentured servitude portion, right? Where they talk about seven years. And the whole time, every time I'm reading it, all I can think about is the story of Jacob and his uncle Laban. Do you guys remember this story? Jacob, without any resources, shows up and he wants to marry his cousin, Rachel. But Laban doesn't want her to marry Rachel. And so he kind of does a little sneaky thing. And after working for the seven years, right, he goes in to marry and it's, it's Leah. And that's a big shock for Jacob. So I'm really happy about that. Because I wanted to marry Rachel after he comes out. He actually says, like, what is it you've done to me? And then after that, he comes back out of the tent and Laban says, you can work for me another seven years. So indentured servitude was possible and not uncommon in the ancient Near Eastern context. In cases of extreme poverty, indentured servitude would provide a safety net. A person with no means, of which Jacob is when he shows up. I mean, he's part of that family, but he doesn't have any flocks with him. He's just, he's running because he tricked his brother out of birthright and he's afraid he's going to get killed. A person with no means of support might indenture himself or a member of his household in order to obtain food, clothing, lodging, a marital arrangement, perhaps capital. This was not uncommon. But the Bible says you can't do it forever. That you have to let this person go after six years. And like 
Jacob, when Jacob finally did leave Laban, he left with a whole bunch of blessings. The Bible tells us here in Deuteronomy 15 that when you let this servant go, you must send them off with blessings too. Servitude was an accepted fact of life in Israel as it was everywhere in the ancient world. But the biblical law aimed at securing humane treatment of the servants, emphasizing the shared humanity between the wealthy and the poor, between like the master and the servant, expecting empathy by drawing upon the Israelite story of slavery in Egypt. Constantly, God's going to be reminding the Israelites, okay, fine, you can have this servant that's going to come and work for you. And then in exchange, they're going to have food or shelter or clothing because they have nowhere else to go. But you have to let them go. And when you go, when you let them go, you let them go with a blessing. And you have to do it by remembering that you too were slaves in Egypt, which was an entirely different thing, by the way. Slavery and chains different than this sort of indentured servitude. Unique among the ancient Near East, the Bible insists that servants be given rest on the Sabbath, be included in festivities, and be protected from physical abuse and harm by their masters. Now we can look at this and say, wow, this sounds awful and horrible. And why would you ever have a place where you would bring somebody in your home and not pay them, but only provide for them food and lodging and clothing for six years and then send them on their way. But when you look at the homelessness that's happening here in Santa Clara and Silicon Valley and in our area, and when we have such the crisis that we have, what would it look like if many of us in the church said, Hey, I have a spare room. You can come and live with me, and I'm going to help provide shelter and clothing and food. And in exchange for that time, we're going to help you get back on your feet. And then six years from now, we're going to send you out stable, healthy, having bed fed and warm and clothed for those times. And we're going to send you with a blessing, a financial blessing as you go. That would be crazy, right? If there were a whole bunch of Christians that were like, oh, I read this chapter in Deuteronomy 15. By the way, I'm not saying necessarily that we all do this exactly as laid out, but you can see that there would be people for whom their life would be forever changed, wouldn't they? Because they were given a warm, safe place to sleep, to heal, to be part of a community and a family, to find another way to live, to not worry about food or their next meal, to try to think about what skills they might have to contribute. And then to be sent with a blessing on their way. So there's something, if we can look past the structures that are cultural to the time period and start to see the ethics within them, there's something quite beautiful in Deuteronomy 15. Now, there were remission practices in the ancient Near East. The Bible is, the Israelites were not the only ones that had practices like this. Some newly enthroned Mesopotamian kings would be known to proclaim the remission of debts and the release of debt servants at the very beginning of their reigns, right? I'm a new king in town. I've just gotten into power. I want all the people to like me. So I'm going to forgive all the debts and set the prisoners free. It's good news for the poor, isn't it? Jesus said something like this. Now, those kings, though, were doing that in service to themselves, right? And you, weren't, you wouldn't know for sure that it would happen. The biblical law is a bit different. God's laws don't depend on the accession of a new ruler or on political calculations. But God's laws aim to restore economic equilibrium on a regular, predictable basis. God, as Israel's divine king, can be trusted to usher in forgiveness, to usher in good news for the poor. 
God's trusted to do this on a regular basis. The remission of debts and other provisions for the relief of debtors are part of the Torah, the Bible's program for preserving a balanced distribution of resources across society so that no one is so deeply and desperately in want that they can't have food or clothing or shelter, that there are resources for them in the land and in the Israelite community. This becomes a dependable reset button for all of Israel. Because you see, we have this God who understands the unpredictable, challenging nature of this life. That we aren't protected from these realities, but we're given a community to hold us when hardship happens. Aren't we all one accident away, one split second away from life changing forever? And we all recognize, after you've lived just about this long on this earth, that when you watch hardship fall on somebody else, when you watch an illness hit somebody else, when you watch divorce or layoffs or disruptions in family systems or a car accident or whatever it is, when you watch that hit another household, you and I both recognize in that moment, that could be me. And then we want to reason around it. Well, maybe they shouldn't have driven there at night or were they wearing their seatbelt or, you know, did they like to live under exposed power lines? And that's why they got, I mean, like we did, they wear sunscreen Were they wearing a helmet. Like we like to try to protect ourselves emotionally, mentally from, from the fact that that could be any one of us at any given time. But God knows that that's the nature of life here on this earth, that illness happens, that earthquakes happen, that hurricanes occur, that war breaks out that layoffs happen, that all of that is, is in many times out of our control. So God has built into the Israelite system a community and a divine king that understands and provides a reset button, another chance every seven years where the debt gets erased. Now the word that the Bible uses for remission of debts, that word for remission, shemitah, literally means dropping or release or let loose. Have you ever had something, an emotional debt, a debt owed to somebody because of sin or brokenness or an actual financial debt that has so weighed you down and weighed down every single decision that it has felt like a stone that you are dragging through every single day? And the Bible gives us a moment where that gets, that heavy burden is released. It's gone. We are let loose. We are set free from those things. Every time we pray the prayer Jesus taught us, we say, forgive us our sins or our debts. As we forgive our debtors. And this has huge implications for practical daily life. God, I'm going to forgive the debt that someone owes me. Please forgive my debts. I'm going to forgive the sin, forgive the trespass, whatever the translation is that we want to use for all of those. It has all of those meanings. When we pray this, Jesus is inviting us into a setting free, a release, a letting loose of all that would burden us and pull us away and weigh us down. And instead, we get to walk into a new and renewed Every time we pray the prayer, we take on that yoke of that prayer 
Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. We're invited into something new and beautiful. So, a few years ago, I read you all this book from the front. I'm really into children's books. Long before I had a small child, I collect them. I love them. And this book by Dan Santat is called After the Fall. And it's about Humpty Dumpty, and it's really beautiful. And and we talked about it and read it because we were reading Genesis, and we were talking about how do we want to be defined? Do we want to be defined as the people who, you know, ate the fruit? Or do we want to be defined as the people who are called good in the image of God? And can we see another option after the fall. In this book, Humpty Dumpty um, has this, uh, I don't know if you know the story, he falls. And um, at the end, he just can't get back up on the wall again. He's really freaked out. You have to come read the story later. And accidents happen, right? This is what Deuteronomy 15 is all about. Accidents happen. And he falls. And they can barely put him back together again. So he's never going to climb up on the wall again. But he longs to go. And he just dreams of it. And then finally he goes back up. And when he's sitting up at the top, he hatches. And he learns to fly. And he says, maybe now you'll remember me not as the guy that fell off the wall was famous for falling, but you're going to remember me as the one who learned how to fly. Now, Dan Santat, the author, and all of his books are beautiful and you should get them all. Um, he shared this story online just a couple of weeks ago, about a week ago, and I wanted to share it with you. I'm about to tell you something that happened to me 12 years ago. I was walking outside my local grocery store. He lives in Los Angeles. When an African-American man approached me, and he slowly approached me with a wide grin on his face, was dressed in an old brown secondhand suit that was a few sizes too big. Although his physique indicated he was maybe 10 to 15 years older than me, he looked much older and worn, and he had a story to tell. I'm not going to hurt you, the man said. I stood and smiled. How can I help you? You probably don't remember me. We met before, a few years back. I searched my mind but found nothing. Oh, really? Where did we meet? A bookstore event? A school The man stopped his approach. He stood safely about 10 feet away. We met here. My mind still drew a blank. Anyway, sir, I don't want to take up too much of your time, but I wanted to give you this. And he reaches into his pocket of his oversized suit and slowly pulls out a healthy wad of nicely folded cash. And in that instant, I remembered. Two years ago in 2017, I bought groceries and was carrying bags to my car and a homeless African-American man wearing tattered clothes hobbled with a limp over in my direction. He was in rough shape. He hadn't showered in weeks, and his body appeared gaunt and malnourished. Hey, man, I was wondering if you could spare some change, he asked. I placed my groceries in the trunk of the car, pulled out my wallet, and I had just gone to the ATM because I was going to go to breakfast with some friends after dropping groceries off at home. I pulled a 20 out and gave it to the man, and his eyes popped wide open and a huge grin across his face. I typically only give a few dollars in a situation like this, but today was special. Ah, thank you, sir. I really appreciate it. God bless. Just as he was about to walk away, I stopped him. I said, wait, I hollered. Hold up. And the man turned back and paused for a moment, thinking about what I was about to do. Today's your lucky day, I said inside. I opened my wallet and I gave him all the cash that was inside. Here, take it. The man was flabbergasted. What? You look like you need it way more than I do. There's about $400 here. Just take it. Well, what, why are you doing this? He stammered. I paused for a moment. Was I really doing the right thing? I hear people tell you not to give money to homeless people because they'll just use that money to buy drugs or alcohol. But I proceeded with my decision. It's my birthday today, I told him. And every year, I always make it a point to do something special for someone to make their day better. 
And today, you're that lucky person, I guess. The first time I ever decided to be generous on my birthday was at a local car wash on my 35th birthday. I never found much value in the machines that car washing facilities provide, those contraptions that would drive your car through to get washed, simply a series of spray hoses and soap suds being lazily dragged over your car by a set of waving rags, the real cleaning jobs done by the guy after the process, the guy who'd drive your car off to a corner and scrub everything off. So he goes over to that guy, and the car wash was only $19, and he gives the guy 40 bucks. He was so grateful. He shook my hand, and in that exchange, I felt amazing. I helped a day into making a good one. It was a wonderful feeling, so I decided to do something kind every year on my birthday. It's my gift to myself. By the way, isn't that true? That our humanity becomes restored when we care for those in need. So in the years following, I would give $40 tips to waitresses or $60 tips to a trio of buskers. And I once bought an entire box of candy from a kid who rang my doorbell trying to save up money for camp. And that was about 75 bucks. But this was $400. What the heck was I doing? The man waved off the money. $400? That's too much. I can't accept it. Dude gets stabbed on the streets carrying around that kind of cash. I want you to have it. I don't want to be rude, but you look like you need this money way more than I do. He stood hesitant. His own pride was preventing him from taking the money what are you doing with that much cash on you? Are you a doctor or something? No, but there was a time I think my parents wished I was. And the man looked at me with a hint of suspicion. You're crazy. How do you know I'm not going to use this to buy crack? Or something like that. Are you? I laughed. The thought of the possibility of my own hard-earned cash being used to buy illegal drugs was somewhat humorous to me at the time. No, 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 I won't. I promise. But are you sure you want to give me all this? I don't even know you. I hesitated, half thinking for a split second I'd perhaps reconsider and just give him an extra 20 But what would an extra 20 do for a man who needed so much more help than that? What if he had enough money to change his course in life if he really wanted to? From that perspective, $400 seemed like just a drop in the bucket, but maybe it's also a start. So I'm not sure, but I know no matter how you got into this situation, I told him, I know it's not because you're a bad person. You probably just hit a string of bad luck. Heck, for all I know, maybe you will blow all this money on booze and drugs. I don't know. But what I'm hoping is that it gives you a chance to get back on your feet if you really want to. The man glanced at the money. Take it. No strings attached. I told him, do whatever you want with it. Buy booze or crack or whatever you want. I'm not going to lecture you on how to live your life because, dude, you're already totally down on your luck, and I think you just deserve a little kindness. You know the mistakes you've made. You don't need to explain yourself to me or anyone. I just thought this money would help make things a little bit easier for you. That's all. The man looked away for a moment, lower trip trembling, and then he slowly glanced, and he took the money. Thank you. God bless you, sir. I really appreciate it. Take care of yourself. I replied as he walked away, and the man walked away and never looked back. So now here we are, two years later, standing in the same parking lot in front of the same grocery store, and my jaw drops open. Holy, and he says something. (laughs) I remember you. You're that guy. Look at you. I don't even recognize you, I shouted. You remember me, right? The man's voice, once a whisper, is now strong and deep as if his lungs consumed every molecule of oxygen around him and projected it out like water from a fire hose. He was no longer gaunt. He was healthy, if not slightly overweight. His hair was clean and trimmed, and he still carried himself awkwardly, but with a shaky, newfound confidence and an occupied in body that once rese- now occupied body that once resembled a dilapidated house. You look amazing. Where have you been? Oh, man, it's a long story. Well, I've got time. Wait, no, wait, I'm sorry. It's none of my business, he said. If you don't really need to tell me, if you don't want to, I just want you to know that I'm a really proud of you, man, and I don't even know you, and I don't know if I get to say that, but you've completely changed. I don't even recognize you. You look amazing. There's an awkward pause. And then the man told him this. I've been coming around to this grocery store now, 
every now and then hoping I'd run into you. I'd stand out here waiting for you half an hour, hoping you'd come in to buy groceries. I wanted to thank you for the kindness you showed me a few years back, and I wanted to pay you back. He grabs my hand, presses the nicely folded bills into my hand, and then folds the folds and creases tell me they've been sitting folded like this for a long time. $400, every cent of it. Hey, you don't need to do this. It's my pleasure. I'm glad the money helped. You can keep it, I reply. Well, I don't want it. Too many painful memories from it. That day you gave me the money, I took it, and I did use it all to get high. Oh, man, I'm sorry. I I shouldn't have. No, no. Afterwards, there were some more really rough months after that. I felt so ashamed. I hated myself. I didn't want to live anymore. I went over to the Colorado Street Bridge, and I was going to climb the fence and jump off. I just wanted to kill myself and end it all, but I chickened out. I was so scared. I was crying on the ground. I was thinking about my wife leaving me, how I let my son down. Now I don't get to see my son. I'm a grandfather. I got so messed up. I couldn't be around any of them, you know. Meanwhile, the groceries are sitting in my car. My milk's going bad. And so he's still telling me a story. Shortly after this incident, cops picked me off off the side of the bridge. They took me to a local homeless shelter, and I got cleaned up. And I get a little something to eat. And then later on that evening, they gathered us all around in the cafeteria. And at one point, they read this story. After the fall. I was shocked. Wait, that's my book, I responded. Yeah, I know. That book changed my life, man. Humpty Dumpty finding the courage to change his life like that, it inspired me. It made me want to change. And so I see your name on the cover, and one day I went to the library with my social worker to look up some more of your books. And I see your picture in one of the books, and I think, holy, that's the guy who gave me $400. I'd recognize those eyebrows from anywhere. (laughs) This is a sign from God. So I'm getting all psyched up and inspired, and the social worker helped me get a sponsor. And after a while, I got myself cleaned up, and I started working around town. I used to be a carpenter. I was doing odd jobs here and there, and so now I work at a hardware store. You see, I got a work-related injury years ago, and I had to stop working. And when my insurance wore out, I was still in pain. And I started to try any kind of drugs that could help with the pain. So I got addicted to painkillers, and it cost me my marriage, and I lost my house, and my kid moved away, and he started a family of his own, and I haven't seen my kid in years, and they all wanted to help, but you can only be helped if you want to be helped, you know? I'm so sorry to hear that man. The man began to cry a little. I knew they cared about me, but I let them down, and there's just a point when the people you love just can't stand seeing you hurt yourself no more. They couldn't stand watching me tear myself apart like that, you know? The man's story cuts me like a knife, and I'm starting to well up with tears. We're now two strangers crying in front of the middle of the grocery store parking lot, and the manager of the grocery store, who I see often, sees us crying outside. Is everything okay? Yeah, 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 we're good. We're just talking. I rapidly answer as I wipe tears from my cheek, and the manager walks back inside. Um, Weird question. You know my name now, but do you mind if I ask yours? I'm Randall. Well, I'm glad you got your life back together, Randall, and I'm sorry about all that stuff that happened with your family, and I think what you accomplished with getting your life back together was huge. I mean, I don't know you, but man, I'm so proud of you. Thank you, brother. I wanted to see you in person so I could give you back the money, and I was hoping you could sign this for me. And he pulls out the book. I've been carrying it around with me for months, hoping I'd see you. The shelter gave it to me. Would you mind signing it? I'd be honored, Randall. Do you want me to make it out to you? Please make it out to Randall the Third. Wait, your grandson? I'm going to go out to see my son and my family next week. They live in Arizona. That's amazing. Are you nervous? I'm excited to see my grandson, but I'm terrified I could screw things up with my family again. Well, you made it this far. I'm sure you'll be fine. Just take it one step at a time, I reply, just like Humpty did. 
One step at a time, says Randall. I sign the book. To Randall the Third, your grandfather's a true inspiration to me. Dan Santat. Thank you. God bless. No, Randall, thank you. This was the most amazing birthday gift I think I've ever received. It's your birthday day? No, no, in 12 years. Well, when my milk expires. Oh, I need to let you get going. I'm sorry I took up all your time. No, man, I'm glad you did. And then we could catch up and hear. I pull out the 400 bucks. I hand it back to Randall. What are you doing? I know you don't need this, so I'm not giving you this money. Get something nice for your family. You know, a housewarming gift or something. That's all. If you ever want to pay me back, you know where to find me. In this parking lot in front of this grocery store. Use it to buy a huge teddy bear for Randall III. Heck, get him a PlayStation 4 or something. I don't care. As far as I'm concerned, you worked so hard to get where you are. You earned every cent of this. This money should be yours. Oh, man, thank you, brother. I grab Randall's hand. I place the nicely folded wad of cash into his palm. I should get going. Yeah, me too. After a few quiet moments, we exchange a hug. Thank you, Dan Santat. God bless you. Take care. We complete our goodbyes and head off in our own opposite directions. I've received a lot of amazing gifts over my 44 years, but never one as incredible as the rebirth and transformation of Randall. You guys, the, this idea that we extend compassion for those in need, that we imagine empathically what, what it could be to see a shift or a change occur, that we believe in the best of the human being that we encounter, that gives everybody a new beginning. And a new beginning that in this story, isn't it so beautiful, sets everybody off their debt free. No debt is owed. Everything's been paid. And a new life, a new beginning can be born. Deuteronomy 15 invites us into this kind of world where truth be told, when we love and care for the poor and the most marginalized amongst us, do you know who gets rescued and changed and saved? You and me. Because it'll be one of us. Next week, next month, next year, could be any one of us. And all of us together belong to the family of God, every person we meet. Father, forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors. And when we live like this, this Deuteronomy 15 living, this Jesus way of life, we're invited into a brand new, beautiful, recreated community. I invite the worship team up to lead us as we continue to be welcomed and invited to the family of God through this meal. For on the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The table is set and all are welcome.